Hello, everybody. I am Kim Scott, and I'm here with the great Wesley Faulkner. Well, I, I mean, it's me. I don't. I, I, maybe you you're talking about Wesley someone Faulkner. else. It, okay, yes. I'm the only one that's in the room on this podcast, anyway. And I'm here with our guest. Nobody. Okay. Yeah, there's Just nobody. Just the two of us today. But we're gonna make it totally worth your while. It's gonna be a good day. Um, so, Wesley, you want to just jump into the reading, and then we'll tell some stories, and yeah. then, then we'll call it a wrap? Yes, yes. This All is right. going to be a story-filled episode, so I'm, I'm happy for this. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Shared norms take shame out of the game. It's important that the person whose bias has been disrupted is treated respectfully, and equally important that they respond with respect. But these are hard moments. Most people feel deeply ashamed when their biases are pointed out. Our fight or flight instincts are activated. We rarely respond well in such moments. How can leaders help themselves and their employees learn to respond when their biases are pointed out like the respectful colleagues they aspire to be? If we are going to disrupt bias, the only way out of these feelings of shame is through. The solution is to work out a shared norm for responding. Thank you is a good place to start, but it doesn't go far enough. If the person who said or did the biased thing understands why what they said or did was biased, they can say, you're right, I'm sorry, thank you for pointing it out. This can be tricky because sometimes a person or a whole team may be trying to change a deeply ingrained habit of speech. That will take time. If your team is working on saying simply you instead of you guys, it may be useful to have a jar into which people put a pebble when they make a mistake. If the person doesn't understand or disagrees, they should know to say something like, thanks for pointing it out, but I don't understand why what I said was biased. Can someone explain it to me after the meeting or send me an article to read? This is hard. When I've been in that situation, I felt doubly ashamed. I harmed someone and I'm ignorant. Having a norm to fall back on in such moments reassures me that I'm not alone. It's a norm because it's not uncommon for us to harm each other without even being aware of it. And it reminds me that I want to be aware so that I don't do it again. The reason not to discuss it in the meeting is that bias happens so often that meetings would get derailed if these conversations happened every time it occurred. At the risk of repeating myself, the goal here is to disrupt the bias without disrupting the meeting. Of course, at times the meeting should be disruptive. If someone disrupted, if someone on a promotion committee, for example, is objecting to someone's promotion for reasons that feel biased, then the promotion deci decision shouldn't be made without resolving the bias of the, the, without resolving the basis of the objection. If you don't do this, bias gives way to discrimination. In order to make this norm a reality and not merely an aspiration, start with yourself. Disrupt your own biases whenever you notice them, or ask the people on your team who are most comfortable challenging you to disrupt your biases in a meeting. Lead by example with your response. Thank them for pointing it out, Reaffirm that this is how you as a team will change destructive patterns of thought or speech. 
So now we've talked about a shared vocabulary. That's what we talked about last time. Now there's a shared norm for responding when you're the one who's biased. You want to stop and talk about that, or should I read about a shared commitment, Wesley? Let's talk about this briefly. Um, Okay. And I I really like, it feels like, of course, since we're working through the book, I'm bringing up some things I've brought up before about like sometimes when you're in that agitated state, it might be hard to recall or know what to say next. And so having that practice and having that standby or the thing that you know what to say in those situations is extremely helpful. So if it's a thank you or, or I appreciate you pointing that out or uh, it can help really quell that defensive response of, I didn't mean it that way or, you know what I'm trying to say that yeah. those that or either diminish it or either brush it off in some way. So, um, as a tool, it's a really great tool to have. And, um, and if someone's reading this and just like, thank you, that's simple. Of course I can remember to say that, but you, it, it takes practice and the time between hearing it, realizing it, and then saying it is something that, um, the, the time gets diminished as often as you are able to practice it. Yeah, you got to build build the muscle. And I think it's uh, the other thing that as I was reading this, I wasn't sure if it was as clear as it could have been. But I feel like th- there are par- part of the defensiveness that happens. And by the way, if I'm the one who said the biased thing and I'm feeling defensive, I have got to own that. If I'm feeling ashamed, that's my that is because of me and that's mine to manage. It's not the job of the people around me. Brene Brown has a really good podcast on this sort of more talking to white people who who respond terribly when they when 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 they when we uh, I guess uh, are uh, say or do something that is racially biased and and then it gets pointed out and often often because of the shame we don't respond very well so uh and and her point is like it's not that someone shamed me it's that i feel ashamed because i said or did something that's wrong and there's a world difference between those two things um so that's number one there's just that instinctive uh feeling of shame when there's bias and and then there there can be shame upon shame like sometimes there's there's uh a word that we say, like in our last podcast that we recorded, we were talking about you guys. It was so hard, you know, so we know it's a problem. We agree it's a problem. We're trying to stop. And yet it's hard. It's like, it's it's hard to change habits. And so that can feel, uh, that, that can, that can intensify the feelings of shame. Luckily our, our guest, Dr. Phil had a good sense of humor about it, but that's not always the case. So h- helping your team to develop that kind of, to respond like Dr. Phil did last week when, when, when he kept making the same mistake, because it's hard. Uh, but, but we also have to be persistent in the face of those habits. And then there's another thing that can sometimes add to the feelings of shame, which is like, I don't even know, you know, you say you wave a purple flag or you say bias alert. I don't even know what I did wrong. And that is doubly, uh, uh, that makes me feel doubly ashamed. So it's really useful, I think, to remind everyone that we're all in that situation sometimes and we got to move through it. Yes, Only way and, out is through. Yeah. And uh, making sure that someone, don't assume that someone already knows what the thing that they did 
or the history of a word or a phrase yeah. is. Um, and the, and what you're saying about it's really ingrained, it's the same with filler words. Some people might go, ah, uh, um, or say like a lot in order to kind of transition from one place of a conversation to another. And those are really hard to get rid of. And you have to give that same grace to the person who is trying to really work to eliminate some trouble language, um, troublesome language that they're, they're, they, they, even if they do know, it just takes, it takes a lot of time and practice to get rid of. So if you, if, if you can use that as a practice to kind of have some compassion for the person who's really trying to work through this. Um, that was a good way to illustrate how hard it might be to eliminate some of that phrasing. Yeah. And, and when we have compassion for other people, we're more likely to have compassion for ourselves as well. An added Absolutely. benefit of having yes. compassion. Because we're all going to make these mistakes uh, in different, different ways. But, but, but yeah. bias, I don't know anybody who doesn't have any biases. Yeah, and that shame that you're saying sometimes that the worst voice is the one that's internal. Yeah, um, often. And yeah, often. And so, like you're saying, if you can have compassion for others, you'll have more compassion for yourself and help you work through some of this. Yeah, silence that that terrible voice on 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 top of your shoulder. Yes. All right, you ready for the second part of the reading? This is about yes. a shared commitment. Or did you have something else to say about? No, I'm just waiting for you, waiting for you to share the next All right, reading. here we go. Uh, a shared commitment builds stamina. Even if you all come up with a shared vocabulary and a shared norm, bias disruptions will likely not take hold immediately. It's a little bit like diet or exercise or any other behavior change. If you've gone a while without disrupting any bias, it probably doesn't mean that your team magically eliminated bias. It means that either nobody noticed the bias or that they didn't feel comfortable pointing it out. So take a minute to recommit to the process. Remind your team that when we ignore bias or fail to notice it, we reflect and reinforce it, even if we don't intend to. As Ruha Benjamin, the author of Race After Technology, pointed out, we are pattern makers. We can change bad patterns and replace them with better ones, but only if we learn to recognize the bad patterns, our own biases. Also, remind your team to share the work. The whole weight can't fall on your shoulders as a leader. Even less should it fall on the shoulders of the people who are harmed by the bias. If they are the only ones speaking up, they'll get tired of talking and it will be harder for the team to listen. Hold folks accountable for upstanding. If you as a leader are consistently the only person who interrupts bias, point that out. Let everyone in the room know you expect them to do the same. Do your fair share of bias disrupting, but you can't be the only one. Your job is to lead by example and to hold others accountable for doing their fair share of disrupting bias. It's so hard to read what I've written out loud because I see all the mistakes and it feels so repetitive. <laughs> anyway, uh, but that's not what you were going to say. What, what are your thoughts? Um, I think it reinforces what I just said, but also... Um how important it is to make sure you do this during the onboarding. Uh, it's yeah. hard to just change directions, but if it's in your company culture, if it's in your team's culture and you're able to continuously reinforce it, 
then it allows people to really understand what the social norms are within that operational envir- operational environment. Uh, everyone's when they're starting, they're always they're always trying to figure out who has power, who can say what, what is allowed, what is disallowed, how who is the in crowd. I think this uh, harkens back to our previous conversation before we started recording that people want to fit in and people want to do the thing that will help their status, also help make sure that they show that they belong with everyone else. And if this is ingrained in the culture, um, then people know by participating and uh, upholding this uh, way of calling out and calling in, then it shows that that's how they show that they are part of the culture and part of the group. But And making sure that you reward that and point that out is also some reinforcing behavior that um, is great to highlight. Totally, totally agree. Well, thank you. I mean, so, so what, what, what do you disagree with in this, in, in the bias disruption process? What do you think won't work? Because it's, it's hard for teams to roll it out. And, and frankly, a lot of teams get excited about it, and then they don't. So what do you think? What, what, what would you tell those teams uh, to, to get them to, it's a little bit like we've just read some something about how important it is to exercise X times a week, but that doesn't mean people are going to go out and exercise X times a week. The reason why this is so hard is that people and organizations are inconsistent. Um, I'm, I could be part of the best group in the world, but then I still do need to interface with another team or another department. And they have their own norms. And the question is, what's the tiebreaker? And it just goes up a level, right? And does the higher order of management also espouse the same thing? And uh, sometimes they don't, or sometimes it is so much lower on that priority list that they don't want to have to coach it, police it, referee it, whatever you want to call it. Um, And so that the, the, that part is hard to stay on top of and be consistent. And then once again, uh, if someone is fired, someone is let go, someone else is hired, a new layer of bureaucracy is added in. Um, there's a, a huge round of layoffs or some existential threat to the company's existence. All that stuff can throw things into turmoil where in this chaos, some of the priorities also get reshifted and things get lost. Um, I yeah. think we see this during the recession too, is that some of the first uh, people who or groups or departments to be let go were DE&I, for instance, because they were seen yeah. as not being able to bring in money. Um, so people might have a good talk, but then when the rubber hits the road, then it really is fleshed out that, you know, Belonging is their top priority. Oh, not right now. Not this week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I, it, it, it changes and shifts. Yeah. And I think part of it may be, you know, there's some existential threat or some economic problem. But I also think even if even if the economy were doing great right now and there were no existential threats right now, I, I'm un- unfortunately I'm afraid that a lot of what is happening, a lot of the back off would still be happening. And I, I, I don't know if I've told you, but here's, here's this analogy that I have. Okay. Uh, it's denial complex, uh, which I think is a much bigger part of the story of Oedipus Rex than the Oedipal complex. So when Oedipus realizes that he has done something really wrong, what does he do? 
He does not. What? I said gouges his eyes out. Yes, he gouges his eyes out. It's like the ultimate uh, uh, sort of maybe violent expression of (laughs) denial, but it's kind of what it, and it feels a little bit to me. Like that's what have I said this before to you? Have I laid I believe this so. one on you? Maybe. Oh, okay, I, I have. Okay. Or, I, I don't anyway, know if it was recorded or not. But sorry yes. if I'm repeating myself, but uh, I think about this all the time. Um, okay, so Wesley, stories. What stories do you have for for our listeners? Well, I'm not sure if you brought up denial complex though. Let's. I want to. I want you to finish that out because um, I I, I oh. do think that is new. Yeah, so so that is what I mean. That what I think you know. There was all all of these organizations after Me Too and after the murder of George Floyd were doing all this really good work and important work. I think, and uh, and it really I think has dried up to a remarkable and disheartening extent uh, in the last in the last sort of year and a half. I would say. Uh, I don't know when would you say the the. Oh. That the disinvestment began. Yeah, I agree. Right when, um, uh, when there was a real um, kind of like a contraction in talent and being able to hire people, where these were seen more as an incentive or a differentiator or a benefit by touting these programs. And I think since the economy itself has loosened, um, it's it's probably. Uh, People were feeling that they don't need to spend money or highlight these programs, uh, but they would still be able to get the talent that they think that they need. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm sure there's a market, a market side to it as well as just a basic human denial side to it. But yeah, it's that is the that is that it worries me because the th- I mean the thing that gives me a sense of hope and optimism is that people were telling these stories more openly about the experiences that they were having uh, both at work and, uh, and, you know, sort of more broadly. And then all of a sudden they, people quit talking and people quit investing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're retreating back into this denial and that is, that's not acceptable. I mean, it's, you know, Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it's funny. I think everyone, or I shouldn't say everyone. I think there was a sense that a lot of people were talking about their experiences and sharing deep knowledge. And then there is a way of belonging by joining in that. But at the same time, when people are talking less, it could be the same phenomenon where people feel to belong is to talk less about that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I <laughs> remarkably, I've been the same no matter what. So I, I'm a person that's an open book, and uh, and I just gave a talk two weeks ago in London, um, and it still amazes me by speaking my truth and what I've experienced and just being honest. That itself is still a differentiator. People say that was brave or yeah. it touched me. And because that thing, that honesty, where people can see themselves in your experiences is extremely powerful to the point where, to me, it feels unremarkable, but other people have the exact same power, but choose not to use it. And that's the only difference between me and them. And I think it's the same with these stories and these experiences 
that there is a sense of otheredness when in fact it's a sense of belonging to be able to kind of connect on that level. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really well said. Uh, because if you, if you can't share your story, then you feel excluded. Yes. You know, just. And you feel like in the minority and you think that the majority has the power, but if everyone did it, that's when people feel that they can join in and feel that safety and that connection. Yeah. Build solidarity. Totally agree. Which is exactly why we do this podcast, right? Yes, so that is why we're doing this podcast. <laughs> we want to have everyone be seen, and um, it's it's. I hopefully it's a movement. I'm not saying we're going to start it, but I think hopefully we can help with making sure that people have the cover they need to feel uh, that they can share their experiences and find a sense of connection with those who also listen to this podcast. Absolutely. Story time. Story time. Speaking of stories. Um, I think we talked about belonging and mm-hmm. the month, uh, it being um, ADHD Awareness Month. This is in mm-hmm. October. Um, and uh, every month there's an awareness month, uh, which is great. I think there's a, I think it's also Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Yes. Um, and but it, uh, it, Hispanic Heritage Month. Yes. Exactly. Also. Yes. And I think in, in Disability Employment Awareness Month. And this is, I think this is also the thing that gives cover by allowing people to come together and share these stories in a place uh, and a time where everyone or who feels like they have the need to do so, that it feels appropriate. Because yeah. it's, I, I have the excuse because of the calendar. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I have ADHD. I think I've, I've, I shared that before. And um, one of the things that I'm doing, luckily, is that in my company, they're bringing us together, uh, several people, and we're going to have a panel. And so what it's been on my mind about some of the questions and misconceptions of ADHD and uh, some of the some of the things that I hear related to other marginalized groups. And I thought I would like share some of those if that's okay. Yeah. Um. One of the things is the hero complex of the minority. Um, sometimes you hear this about like border security or immigrants. Immigrants are the hardest workers, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And uh, some of them are lazy because we're all lazy because we're all, I mean, we all are people. We have different shades and different motivations. Um, and some of the things with um, the, the talk about people with ADHD or people who are neurodivergent um, is that they call some of the things superpowers. I, I like that. That sounds really great. Um, but I also don't want it to feel um, almost like uh, the woe of the superhero who has to hide their identity or yeah. it's, it's, it's more of the things of there are um, the, the person I was working with, they, uh, they ask the question or they are phrasing some of the questions. And one of the things that they say is like, do you want to talk about some of the things that you've overcome to be able to be successful in your current role, even though you have this thing? Um, And that notion of overcoming is kind of like the hero's journey of Mm -hmm. having something that, um, you know, despite all the odds, I was able to get to where I was uh, or am. And uh, I wanted to spell that myth. it's something I struggle with and it is something that I will always struggle with. And it's not a struggle in all cases 
that sometimes the environment is the thing that disables me and it's not just me. Yeah. And so if if I was given the right under the right context, under the right environment, I can thrive. But under a different environment, I could really struggle. And it's not just something that I've, it's internally managed. And um, it's sometimes it's external as well. And that's the thing that I want to make sure that people who have difficulties because of their environment sometimes feel it's a personal failure because yeah. they haven't found the right coping skills or they haven't found the right method or or a way of communicating it. And it, there's not necessarily an overcoming that has to happen or does happen. Um, and I guess that's the biggest thing that I wanted to, to kind of put it out there that um, sometimes having the psychological safety to say, you know what, I'm not going to make any of my tasks this week. I know they're, they're due this week. And being able to say that and have the permission to say that because you've been too distracted or your prescription didn't get filled. Those are things that allow people to say, I need help. And then others to say, I will help you. And without that give and take in an organization or a, a group, or it's really hard to not internalize that struggle and just wait to the due date and say, okay, I, I didn't do it. And then feel not only worse, but put your your, your your colleagues in a difficult position because they were counting on you to to do that thing. Um, so I guess that's, I, I feel like I'm rambling now, but basically the summation of this is that there needs to be internal structures and external structures in order for a person to feel like they're able to produce their best work and do the right thing um, when the opportunity presents itself. Yeah, I mean, I think it is what we owe each other at work and in school is to, to is to create the environment in which each person can be their best selves. And yes. there are certain things that that are going to make it really hard for you to work uh, at your best, and there are certain things that are going to make it hard for me to work at my best. And I think uh, we we all need to to do a better job respecting what other people need and asserting what we as individuals need. Absolutely, um, and we we need to trash the golden rule and really embrace the platinum the rule. Platinum rule. Yes. So, do you want and to explain to people what you mean by that? I agree with you. Sure, sure. Um, I think there's a lot of people who know the golden rule, which is treat others how you would like to be treated. Uh, so. Um, what that does is kind of remove compassion and only focuses on empathy. It assumes that you can feel what the other person feels because you're putting yourself in their shoes and you would know how to treat them based on that. The platinum rule is treating people how they would like to be treated. And that is understanding that people are different and what you would want in a situation is not necessarily what they would want in the same exact situation and really leads on compassion. Just because you can't understand what someone's motivation or what someone needs, having a conversation and allowing that have a transparent conversation about those things allows you to be able to give them what they need in the way that they need it. And so that that is the work that needs to happen in order to facilitate the platinum role treat others like they would like to be treated. So well said. So well said. And I think 
you know, everyone, you know, even people who are quote unquote neurotypical are not like, we're all different, you know? Uh, And is that the right word even to use? Yes, Neuro- that, that is yeah. a right word, of course. Yes, yeah. Uh, so it's it's one that is known, so it, it, it yeah. holds a place that you're trying to communicate. So yeah, yes. um, yeah. It's re- I mean, it's really interesting. When I was growing up, uh, it, th- this was not something that got tested for. But I have been told mm-hmm. by several of my colleagues uh, that if I tested, I would probably. Uh, I would probably find that I too have ADHD, but I, I don't know. Uh, but I did fail kindergarten because I was not in the right environment to learn. It was really hard for me. And I struggled with feeling stupid for like the next 15 years. It's hard. Yes. And because of that, when you're saying everyone's different, everyone also has their own trauma. And some people yes. won't categorize it as trauma. They'll call it as a bad experience or all this stuff. But, it, you know, it's it's trauma that we all deal with, with different, you know, levels of, of how severe and critical and important. But we all have these things where it people can use it to drive them. People can use it to motivate them. But also it can be a barrier to different things, but like not trying too hard or, or not being not excelling or someone who needs to excel because they need to make sure that they are at the top of the class. That's how they find their own personal fulfillment. So there are ways that people, even in, like I said, like you were saying, like who are considered neurotypical, that still you will not be able to understand. Yeah. (laughs) There's a book called, um, gosh, I think. The End of Average. Is Is that what you're thinking about? The the guy that studied the the cockpits? Yes, yes, I lo- yes. So tell that story. I love this. It's so good. Oh, it goes into the history that um, the 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 normal is made up. The 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 yeah. There's definition, no such thing as the average person. There, they, there used to be contests about who is the most average by doing these measurements and doing these calculations. But it all is just math, and uh, and it, it's just that. Then it's also thinking about like. Typical women, typical men. It's extremely culture based as well, too. Yeah. Um, because of different environments, and it's just basically just saying, if you wrote everything down that of what an average person is, you would not be able to find one person that would be able to yeah. check those boxes. Yeah, and I think the author of this did a did a study that that they were designing cockpits. The Air Force was designing cockpits. And they were trying to design a cockpit for the average size pilot, you know, and that cockpit, that cockpit did not fit anyone. So speaking mm-hmm. of the environment, uh, that, that environment was good for nobody. So we got to adjust for each person who we encounter. Um, and I think it's especially important uh, to, to recognize uh, mm-hmm. our colleagues who have ADHD and uh, ask them what they need, but not to make assumptions uh, about them. And I'm also realizing something that maybe you and I should sit down and go through all the books that we've read and see how much overlap there is. Uh, I bet there's I, enormous I, overlap. I think there's a huge, that's really, really uh, uncanny. So yes, yes. That's have funny. grace and have compassion. Yes, and treat each person as an individual, not as a typical so-and-so. Yes.
Um, I think I've also, since we're talking about books, I brought this up probably multiple times, but I think it's relevant. Um, it's the um, Against Empathy is the book that I brought up. Yes, before. Paul Bloom. And, yes. And so uh, if you are looking to delve more into this, I would really suggest that book. And speaking of books, there's another book that I read called Driven to Distraction about ADHD, and it really helped me have more compassion for uh, for it. It's a wonderful. It's I don't know if you've read that one, but it's a great book. I have not. Um, well, and- you can let me know what you think. Maybe I'm all wrong, but I found it very helpful. What are we talking about? I'm sorry. Uh, Driven to Distraction is a book about. I, 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 I'm just messing with you. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I fell for it. Yes. Um, All yes, right. Well, I, thank I, you, Wesley. Always, always a pleasure. Uh, loved the conversation. And where can folks write to us if they have a story they want to share? Oh, of course. They can write to us at hello at justworktogether.com. Yeah, Perfect. I got it. <laughs> you got it. I couldn't remember for a minute either. That's why I asked you. I was distracted. All right. um, thank you so much. Great, great talking. Yes. Take care. Take care.